back tonight at 6 o'clock. We have our prayer time at 5.30. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, the life of the church is prayer. And uh, I want to encourage you to come and join with us in prayer at 5.30, if at all possible. And uh, then uh, at 6 o'clock, we're going to pick up a study that we started last Sunday night on living by biblical principle. Living by biblical principle or living the victorious Christian life. And uh, I want to encourage you to come be a part of that and uh, bring a notebook and pen. We're going to give a lot of practical information, but uh, things that I believe are very critical in the Christian life. Um, a lot of people just don't understand. They, 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 they hear preaching, they have a heart for the Lord, they love the Lord, and then they sometimes leave the service wondering, well, how do I do that? And uh, the next few weeks on Sunday night, we're going to be giving you the how. Here's how we do it. I think it was Spurgeon who said one time, the message begins really when the application begins. And so we want to take time to apply God's Word and put it into practice in our lives. How do we integrate these truths into our lives? And so we're going to be talking about those things tonight and preaching on that and uh, giving some biblical teaching in the subject of living by Bible principle. I want to encourage you again to be here tonight. If you were not here a few weeks ago um, for the service we did on why I'm a Baptist, uh, there were a few of you last week even that were still asking for the DVD or CD on that. I don't think we have a DVD. And Brother David has those in the back. They're already recorded this morning. So if you did not get one of those and you would like to have one, he does have those available to you. And uh, if you didn't ask for one, I think he's got extras. So you're welcome to get those. It's important that we understand why we believe what we believe. And I grew up in a pastor's home and for a long time, just because mom and dad said so was good enough, wasn't it? And uh, But at a certain point... Uh, the Bible says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. At a certain point, you got to know why you believe what you believe. And you better know it from God's Word. We better understand from God's Word why is it that we hold to the things that we hold to and believe the things that we believe. And if we can't find them in Scripture, then there's not a purpose in believing them. And uh, if we do find them in Scripture and we don't believe them, we better start believing them. And so we want to make sure that the Bible is our sole authority. It's what we go to. Uh, I'm thankful in our, our type of a church that we don't take uh, the word of a man as being a new revelation from God. We have God's complete re- revealed self in his word, and we just simply have to read it and know it. And uh, it's that simple. So I want to encourage you, uh, if you will, be here tonight at 6 o'clock for uh, that series that we're going to be doing. Hopefully we'll finish up either tonight or next Sunday night, uh, very short, just a two or three service uh, type of a, a series that we're doing. And uh, a lot of things coming up uh, in the life and ministry of our church. And I want you to be praying for the new year as we make some plans for next year and uh, be setting a calendar for the new year and getting some things uh, laid out and trying to see what God would have us to do as we enter into 2018. And uh, I'll tell you, I heard somebody say it this way one time. We ought to live as if Christ is never coming back, but we, or plan as if Christ is never coming back, but we ought to live as if he's coming back right now. And so we want to make plans, and we certainly want to have goals, but I'll tell you, I, I think every day we ought to be living like he's coming back right now. And uh, I'll tell you, we are living, I'm certain, in the last days, probably the last of the last days. And uh, I'm looking forward to his coming, aren't you? And if you're sitting there this morning saying, boy, I don't know if I'm looking forward to that or not. Well, there's time to get that right. Uh, we need to be looking forward to his coming. And whether you're saved or whether you're lost, uh, we need to be ready for Christ's coming. That we can stand before God one day and hear, well done, now good and faithful servant. 
And uh, I hope that we're all ready for that. If you're here and you're not saved, our hope and our prayer is that you'll get saved. Uh, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus sure does love you an awful lot. And He died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to die and go to hell. And He doesn't make it hard. Aren't you glad of that? He does not make it hard. He makes it so simple. Uh, just simply put your faith and trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, He's promised that He'll save us. And I'm thankful for that. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, then uh, we ought to be doing everything that we can to press for the mark. Press for the mark. We don't want to just breathe in the good air and blow out the bad air. We want to do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want God to use us and uh, that the Holy Spirit will empower us and strengthen us for the work and the, the task at hand. Well, Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 4. We've been now several weeks in the study of the book of Nehemiah. It's interesting to note that Nehemiah is an ordinary man who has an extraordinary God who does extraordinary things through him. And that brings encouragement and hope to us. We get excited about those things because uh, I know, at least in my case and in my kids' case, we're, we're pretty ordinary. There's not a whole lot different about us than any other people. And I think if we were to go around the room, most all of us would say, I'm a pretty ordinary person. There's nothing extraordinary about me. And yet we have an extraordinary God, a supernatural God. And a God that, thank the Lord, is alive and not in the grave. And uh, I'll tell you what, I heard a, a recitation this week, a poem this week, on the funeral of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, I just about got ready to shout at the end of that thing, that uh, He is not in the grave anymore. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And uh, certainly we're thankful for that. And uh, But uh, Nehemiah is an ordinary man, has a supernatural God, does extraordinary things through him. And uh, we found in chapter 1, and we got a little bit even into chapter 2, that Nehemiah was a man of prayer in chapter, the end of chapter 2, middle and end of chapter 2, and into chapter 3 in the first part of chapter 4, we found that he is a man of perseverance. He is a man of perseverance. So a man of prayer and a man of perseverance. We're going to find here as we go through chapter 4 and into chapter 5 that he is also a man of preparedness. A man of preparedness. We're going to look at that this morning. Look with me, if you will, in Nehemiah chapter 4. The Bible says, But it came to pass when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. And Father, we come to you this morning, and we pray that you'll bless the time that we have here this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would help to put a hedge of protection around this service. We understand and we know and are aware of the fact that Satan hates everything that's going on here this morning. And he will do everything in his power to disrupt and to distract and to cause our minds to wander from the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that for the next few moments you will help us to bring our thoughts into captivity, that we will help to 
keep our attention focused on the truth of your word. And Lord, we don't need to hear a lot of theory and conjecture and speculation. Lord, what we need to know are the truths from your word, these principles that we can anchor our lives to, that we can, that we can grow by them, that we can put them into practice in our lives and become more of what we ought to be for you. And then, Father, as we leave here, I pray that you will help to have drawn our hearts closer to you, that through the singing and the fellowship and the preaching, that we'll love you with more of a heart than we did when we came in. And Father, if there's someone here today that's lost, I pray that you would bring conviction and help them to see that need and to get that matter settled before it's too late. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We find as we get to the beginning of chapter 1 that there are some men that we've already heard about in chapter 2 named Samballot and Tobiah. And we also hear of Gershom a little bit later on. And uh, these men are very wroth. They're very uh, full of indignation. They're full of... Um, anger and, and just cannot believe that there's somebody that is seeking the welfare of this city and the Israelites as a whole. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible teaches us very clearly that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That he is the principalities and powers that the angels have to war against sometimes in the affairs of this world. We understand that he is like a roaring lion, the Bible says, walking to and fro, Seeking whom he may what? What is it? That he may devour. Okay. Now, it's very important we understand this. That Satan is not out to make our lives inconvenient. He's not out to, to just cause some pain in our lives. He's not out to just cause some disruption in our lives. Satan is out to destroy the life of every Christian. To cause their testimony to be so emaciated that people could not even recognize them as a child of God. And Satan is out to do this on a daily basis. You and I are facing this thing. And Satan has not changed his tactics in all these years, 7,000, probably 6,000 plus years that the world has been in existence. Satan has not changed his tactics. And he, from the Garden of Eden, has used two main things. First of all, he tries to entice us to sin. And if he cannot get us to be enticed to sin, then he uses pressure. And uh, he tries to pressure us to sin. And uh, when he can't get his way, Satan gets mad, doesn't he? You remember the story of the prophets of Baal who were trying to light the fire on the altar? Y'all remember that story? The Bible says that from sun up until sundown, they were dancing and cutting themselves, and the blood was, the Bible says, was gushing from them. There was a spirit of chaos and, and violence going on. And then you read of uh, New Testament accounts of the demoniac and the one that Jesus healed and how he had thrown himself into the fire and how he had cut himself and run naked through the tombs and just the violence that there was. We read about Stephen, the one of the first deacons, as he was filled with the Holy Ghost, stood up and preached. And the people, the Bible said, were so pricked on their hearts that they ran on him and gnashed on him with their teeth and threw rocks at him and stoned him to death. And Satan gets that angry when God's work is being done. By the way, if you take time to look at the news today and look at the utter chaos and violence in our country, you can mark it down. The devil's pretty mad right now. And he needs to be madder yet because God's church ought to be raising up and holding the truth of the Word of God high as a lighthouse for this world. For men to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say the answer is not in all the violence and all the things that Satan has for us in this world, but the answer for my life is in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And we need to lift Him up. We need to lift the Word of God up high. 
And Sanballat and Tobiah use a tactic that is very much used by Satan to attack Christians. He begins by appealing to their pride. He appeals to their pride. He tries to to harm their pride. And by the way, let me just say this. The Bible says these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. And the very top of the list, the very first one on there is what? Anybody know? A proud look. It's an abomination to the cause of Christ. I think homosexuality and those types of immoral things are absolutely appalling, and I think they are travesty, and I think they are certainly an abomination to God. They say that in Scripture. And we get angry at those things, and we get very vocal about those things, but why do we not get angry about the other abomination of the Lord Jesus Christ? This abomination of pride. Why do we not get angry at ourselves for the pride that's within us? And Sanballat comes to Nehemiah, and the very first thing he does is attack his pride. He begins by scoffing and ridiculing and making fun, not just in two or three people, but in front of all of the workers, in front of this whole group of people that are trying to do the work. He's trying to discourage the workers by tearing down the pride of Nehemiah. And if Nehemiah was a man of pride, it would have worked. Aren't you glad Nehemiah was a man of humility? That he was able to bring his pride under captivity. There was a a project that I had to do when I was in Bible college by a professor. It did not even pertain to the class he was teaching. But he had every class that he ever taught do this project. And the project was a project studying the subject of pride. We had all semester to do it, but we had to write every verse down in Scripture that dealt with the word pride or proud or haughty or anything of that subject nature. We had to write the passage down in a notebook, and then we had to write a phrase or two about it saying what the Lord was teaching us through it, and we had to hand it in at the end of the semester. And at the end of the semester, the the stack of books were on his desk. He came over and sat on the corner of his desk, and he said, Now, class, what have we learned from this project? And a few people raised their hand and said, Well, we learned that uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he said, yes, that's a truth. That's certainly scripture. But that's not what we learned from this project. And he went on and several people brought up other verses and other things that it dealt with about pride. And finally, after several had tried and failed at giving him the reason for the project, the teacher said this, what I want you to get if you get nothing else from this class this year. And to be real honest with you here 20-some years later, the only thing I can remember from that professor's class is this project. He made this statement. Every sin in a Christian's life has its root in pride. Boy, I stopped as a 17, 18, 19-year-old young man that knew everything. You know how that goes. You know a lot when you're young, don't you? And I thought, boy, I'm not sure he's right about that. But the more I thought on it, the more I realized that he was right. There's not a sin that you and I commit that does not have its root in pride. Perhaps that's why God put it at the top of the list as an abomination in his sight. And Sanballat and Tobiah come to Nehemiah and they think, ha ha, we're going to tease him. We're going to rib him about his service for God. And Nehemiah is going to cower His pride is going to be bruised and he's going to succumb to the nature of his pride and say, I don't want to be ridiculed like this, so I will stop. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah, a man who had conquered his pride long ago and had a humility about him, 
that was given by God himself. And when Sanballat and Tobiah realized that they could not get there through his pride, and by the way, it was just a tactic of Satan, by the way. These men didn't come up with this on their own. Then they start to figure, you know what, we're going to threaten him physically with violence. And Sanballat, according to verse number 2, speaks before his brethren, the army of Samaria. He goes to an army of men. He says, fellas, there's a group of folks over there that have the benefit of the nation of Israel at their heart. And they're trying to, to help and be a blessing to the, to the children of Israel. And, and we ought to have no part of that. We want to make sure that that doesn't happen. And he stirs up an entire army against Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is not a warrior. He's not a general. The people that are working on the wall are, are the, there's two types of them we'll find here in a few moments. There's those that bear the burdens, those that just carried the rubbish and, and carried the materials. And then there were the workmen, the, the skilled labor, the ones that did the work of building the wall. And these are men that, that they have talents, but they're not warriors. They're not soldiers. They're not an army that's been well trained. And Sanballat thinks, you know what, if we can't get him by his pride, then let's go ahead and let's just threaten him a little bit with some organized military action here. And it will cause him to get fearful and to not trust God and to start saying, I'm not going to build the wall. But not Nehemiah. Because we've seen since chapter number one that Nehemiah is not trusting in his strength. He's not trusting in the strength of Artaxerxes, the king. He's not trusting in the strength of those that are working and those that are the bearers of burdens. He is trusting in who? Who is it? We can say it. He's trusting in God. God is his strength. And the only way Sanballat's going to scare him is if he scares God. And I'll tell you right now, God wasn't scared of the Syrian army, was he? He wasn't scared of him at all. God could, with a thought, defeat the armies of the Syrians. He goes to the army of the Samaritans. He goes to the army of Samaria in verse number 2 and says, What do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? And so he tries to discourage Nehemiah by saying, Where are you going to get your materials? These stones have been burned. They're in the piles of the rubbish. They're not, they have no structural strength to them anymore. They're crumbly rocks. You think you're going to build a wall out of this? No wonder Tobias said in verse number 3, the Ammonite, he says, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. And these men take some very drastic steps to discourage Nehemiah, don't they? And what is Nehemiah's first response? Does he write a letter back to them saying, I don't think you all ought to be doing this. It's, it's certainly not Christ honoring. And boy, I, I just don't think you ought to be doing this. Is that what Nehemiah does? Does, does Nehemiah go to the, to the Jerusalem newspaper and put a big article in there refuting what Sanballat and Tobiah are doing? Is that what he does? What's his first tactic? Does he, does, he, does he start saying to his buddies and his neighbors, man, I just can't believe, can you believe what those guys are doing? I'll tell you what, they, 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 the Lord ought to just do something about them. I don't know what we're going to do, but they're out Is, Did he go around talking about them? What was Nehemiah's first response? What was it? What was it, David? He heard you. Prayer. 
What do we do when men revile us? What do we do when people offend or hurt us? What's the first response? The ones that try to discourage us from doing what God wants us to do, what's our first response? Well, Brother Greg, you know, Facebook, that's that's where I go. No. No, we're not supposed to go to Facebook, are we? Well, I pick up the phone and I call that brother in Christ and I just say, Brother, you've offended me. No, 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 wait a minute. Before even we do that, where do we go? We go to prayer. They're not attacking Nehemiah, are they? Who are they attacking? They're attacking God. It's His battle. By the way, when we're doing the Lord's work and somebody gives us a hard time or persecutes us for doing God's work, they're not affecting us, are they? They're coming after the Lord. He's the one that put us in the work, isn't He? He's the one that commissioned us for it. He's the one that gave us the resources to do it and provided the opportunity for us. If they're trying to go against the work of the Lord, they're trying to go against God, not us. So whose battle is it? Is it mine or His? What if they get a big army together? Mine or His? It's His. So the first place I go, the first place I go is to the Lord. He says in verse number 4, Hear, O God, we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head. Give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. And I want you to notice this. Nehemiah prays pretty boldly, doesn't he? He's not nice. This was before the principle of the New Testament that said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Nehemiah is not trying to love him, is he? In fact, there was something that was involved in these men that Nehemiah knew there was no swaying them. They were scorners. They were those that had been beyond the point of of reason when it came to the things of the Lord. But I want you to notice that Nehemiah's prayer of God judging these men was not because they had done something against Nehemiah. Look what it says, verse number four, verse number five, and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked. What's the next word? Thee to anger before the builders. God, it's not about me. It's about you. And by the way, the older we get in our Christian life, the more we can learn this truth that nothing about the Christian life is ever about us. It's always about Him. If we can ever learn that secret, it will start to give victory in the Christian life. It will bring a peace that passes all understanding. It will bring contentment that we've never experienced before. When we realize that everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we have to experience in life is all because of God. Not because of us. Well, Brother Greg, you don't know what I've been through. You're right, I don't. But He does. And not one thing has happened in your life that He's not allowed. In fact, not one thing in your life has happened without Him putting you there. And without Him working through you in the valley. We go on to verse number 6. The Bible says, So built we the wall... And all the wall was joined together under the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. 
There wasn't even a hiccup in the work, was there? This didn't slow them down. It didn't cause them to get any less work done. They just kept right on doing it. And they had built the wall now to at least half high. Some spots they built it even higher. But they had enclosed the entire wall at least half. We get to verse number 7. We begin to see Nehemiah, the man of preparation, the man who knew what it was to make sure that he was ready for the fight. But it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. That's nothing new. We've seen that before. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, and once again, is this any surprise to us? We made our prayer unto our God. And then I want you to notice this, because I think it's critical in the day and age that you and I live, this truth that we're going to see right here. And set a watch against them day and night because of them. Where do we go first when we're faced with opposition? Where's the first place we go? We go to the Lord in prayer, right? Everybody agree with me? You with me? Everybody awake? It's warm today, I know. We go to the Lord in prayer. The very first place we go. But when the prayer is over, we better set a watch. Because the the devil is as a roaring lion. He's going everywhere he can, seeking whom he may devour. And we know what his tactics are. That's the thing of it. We're not foolish to this. We're not oblivious to this. We've seen his tactics. We know what they are. And what we need to do is set a watch and say, I'm going to be on guard for that tactic in my life. The man that comes and ridicules me, I'm just going to laugh because I just know that's just one of the tactics of the devil and I'm not going to let it happen. It's not going to deter me. The man that comes and threatens, I'm just going to laugh. That's just a tactic of Satan. I already know that one. Does he not have anything new? God will overcome that. But we set a watch. And so we begin to set a watch in our lives. And I want to encourage you in this because Nehemiah knew what it was to prepare for these men that were going to come together, all these countries and people that were going to come together against Jerusalem. And he says in verse number 10, And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burden is decayed. And there's much rubbish so that they are not able to build the wall, so we are not able to build the wall. And I want you to just understand this, that there were certain people that were designated to remove the rubble, and certain men that were able to do the work of rebuilding the wall. These were skilled craftsmen that would build the, the stonework and do the work of the skilled stonemasons. And they had taken some of the bearers of burdens and put them at the watch. And those that were doing the skilled labor were catching up to them and they were getting to the point where they were having to slow down their work in order to remove some of the rubbish themselves because the rubbish had not been there. Let me just say this. The progress of God working and building our lives to what they ought to be, our spiritual growth, if you will, will always be hindered when there's too much rubbish. It will always be hindered when there are things in our lives that ought not be there. I'm not one to tell what the rubbish is in your life, and neither are you the one to tell what the rubbish is in my life. But there ought to be times that you and I go to the Lord and say, Lord, search my heart 
as the psalmist did, and see if there be any wicked way in me. The Bible says that about the Lord Jesus Christ, about God Himself, I am He which searcheth and trieth the reins of the heart. He also wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know that we don't know our hearts as well as God knows them? It's possible for us to even deceive our own selves, isn't it? So there ought to come times, especially in a Christian's life, where we sit down and we say, God, if there's something there that I'm missing, show it to me. Make it plain. Make it obvious. Because I don't want the work to stop. I don't want the life, the growth of my life in my Christian walk with you to be stunted or to be slowed down because of rubbish in the way. I want to get rid of these things. What is it that's in our lives that's holding us back? What is it that's keeping us from having the power of God on our lives? And what is it that holds us and hinders us from doing God's work? It's not an answer for me to answer. It's an answer for God to answer in your hearts. Just as it is for God to answer it in my heart. As we come to Him and we lay our hearts bare to Him and say, God, what is there? Look into the darkest crevices and corners of my heart. And I want you to search it out, God. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything hidden from God? Anything? Not one thing. And if we ask Him to search our hearts, He'll do it, won't He? And it's going to be painful. And it's going to hurt. We're going to be embarrassed. We're going to see things as we come to God and say, Lord, show me. Show me the rubbish. I want to clean it out because I want those walls to be rebuilt. I want my heart to be so well guarded that Satan's attacks, we can stand behind the wall and laugh at him. Knowing that God is our fortress. These burdens of bearer, bearers of burdens were decayed. And so the rubbish was beginning to be a problem. And we find in verse number 11, And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times from all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears and their bows And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible. And fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. I believe that there is something we learn here about our lives. And that is this. We need to find the low places where the wall is not quite as high as some of the other places in our lives. And we need to set watches. We know it's an area of weakness, don't we? We better be extra careful around those. So we put the watch behind the wall and we say, Lord, I need some extra strength in this area. Perhaps it's a besetting sin in our life or something we've not been able to get victory over. Perhaps it's something that maybe is hindering or or being a detriment to our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look at that and we say, I know that's an issue and I know that's a weakness. I know that's a problem in my life. If we know it, then let's pray and ask God to give us strength in that area. 
Let's set the watchman right there at that spot. I understand alcoholism is one of the great detriments to our society today. It becomes, some people call it a disease, it really is an addiction and it's an addiction to sin. This thing of alcohol that consumes and gets a control on a man. And if a child of God comes to a realization that this is causing their Christian walk not to move the way that it should, and they're involved in alcohol, they've been going to the taverns every week, They realize that's not a good testimony for a child of God. God begins to work on them and convict them of that. They get down on their face before God and say, Lord, I need victory in this area. I need help to overcome my alcoholism. Let me ask you a question. A man that is in that situation, would it be wise for him to go and stand outside the tavern of the door and say, Oh, I just want to catch the smell? I'm not going to drink. Because God's going to give me strength, but I'm going to go by and I'm going to smell. I'm, you know, my old friends are back there. I just want to go see them. They're, they're my old friends, you know. There's some nostalgia there, and I, I just miss my old friends. You think it would be wise for them to do that? No, because that's, that's the wall that's only half high. They don't have the strength in that area, do they? Their strength of character is not there. So what do we do? We put an extra guard on that one. We say, not only am I not going to drink the alcohol, I'm not even going to go to the places or hang around the people that do. Is it wrong to hang around people that drink alcohol? Not inherently. We pass by them every day in Walmart, don't we? Is it a sin to be brushing our elbows with them and being around them? No. No, it's not. But we know that if we start fellowshipping and, and being with them and having friendships with them, that is quickly going to draw us back into that life, isn't it? And so we say, you know what, if it's going to cause me to even stumble, I'm going to, I'm going to put that away from me. Somebody said it this way years ago. They shared an illustration of a cliff that was ruining and destroying people's lives. They would walk headlong and fall over the edge of the cliff, not realizing that the edge was there and There were a lot of folks that were falling and dying at the end of that cliff. Till one day somebody thought, you know, let's put a fence up there to keep people from falling over the cliff. Pretty good idea, right? And they put a fence right at the very, very edge of that cliff. You know what they found? They found that people's curiosity would get the best of them. If they lived in the day and age that we lived, they they wanted to get the best selfie that they could. And so they climb over the fence, don't they? And by the way, that's human nature. We could ridicule somebody that would do something like that and say they're a fool, but the truth of the matter is we all do it, don't we? We all get right to the edge of what's right and what's wrong, and we want to get just as close as we can without being wrong. They started climbing over that fence, and the second they set foot on the other side of the fence, they were falling again, weren't they? They did that for years and years and years, lives being destroyed. And then somebody got the idea and said, you know, why don't we take that fence and why don't we move it back from the edge? Instead of being as close to the point of a life being salvaged or life being destroyed, why don't we put it far back? So that if somebody climbs over this barrier, they're still safe. 
They still have solid ground under their feet. And so we begin to come up with what we call standards. And standards are not necessarily things that we bring right to the edge and say, if we break this standard, it's wrong. They're just watchmen that we put in place in the lower parts of the wall. So that if the wall is breached, we're still safe, we're still protected. We still are at a place where if we go over that standard, we've not, we've not ruined our lives or wrecked our lives. I've heard people over the years that gripe and complain about certain standards in their life. And by the way, it's not my, my responsibility to give you a standard that God may want you to have. That's for God to do. But you know what the weak spots are in your life, and God knows what they are. And He may give you a standard that He doesn't give to the next person. Doesn't make them right, doesn't make them wrong. It just simply makes us wise if we follow them, doesn't it? To set a standard that puts us so far away from what's right or what's wrong, that even if we go over that standard in a moment of weakness, we're still safe. We still have not sinned against God. Nehemiah puts extra special attention on these low places of the wall. And then on the high places, he puts these men up there, and they all got their spears and their swords, and their bows and their arrows. And he puts a watchman. And he puts a man that blows the trumpet, and he said the man that, to the man that blows the trumpet, I want you to stand right here beside me. And what Nehemiah did was he would walk the perimeter he would see the progress of the work and keep the men encouraged. And as he began to see the enemy in the far off distance, the idea was that he would have this man blow and all would come running to that point. And they would bring their weapons with them and they would shore up the defenses. Well, I'll tell you what. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing in the day and age that you and I live that when a brother in Christ is stumbling or has a weakness in their life, and the enemy comes, that we blow a trumpet and we all rally around them. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? You know what happens nowadays? Sadly, something like that happens, and we shun them. Well, that person's not right with God. There's something wrong in their life. I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to help them. You know what the Bible says? If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, what? What does it say? Restore such one. Does it not? It doesn't say that we're to revile them. It doesn't say that we're to cast them out. In fact, even church discipline. Have you ever looked through church discipline? This isn't part of the message. I'm going to take the time out for a minute and help you with something. You know, the Bible says that a man that's in the church that is overtaken in sin, that the first thing you do is you go to him individually. And if the man repents, a brother is one, everything's great. If he doesn't, then you take two or three witnesses with you. You come get a couple deacons or a couple men of the church or a couple ladies if it's a lady, and you go to them. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, you come before them. And if they say, you know what, you're right, I've got that, I need to get that right with God, I'm going to do things right, then we've gained a brother. If they still won't hear, then the Bible says that we take them before the church, and they still have opportunity. If they still won't acknowledge the fact that there's this issue, then the Bible says that as a church we have to send them out 
from being a, a part of our membership. Doesn't mean we don't love them, that we don't still try to integrate them back in church. But do you realize that at any spot along that line of church discipline, that they say, you know what, there's, you're right, man, I need to get that right. We've gained the brother. Church discipline is not about pushing people out of the church. It's about keeping people in the church. Amen. I've had people come to me as a pastor before and say, Pastor, this person's doing this, this, and this. You need to send them out of the church. I said, well, wait a minute. That's not what it's for. It's to try to bring them back into the church. It's to try to get them involved and to get this thing settled. We're to be helping one another, encouraging one another. The Bible puts it this way. We're to be edifying one another. We live in a day and age where that's not real popular preaching, but it is still Bible. Nehemiah had this set up here as we get down verses number 13 and 14. He sets these men at a watch. And the Bible says in verse 14, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the, uh, the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. And I want you to see this. Please don't miss this. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight, watch this, for your, what's the next word? Brethren. Satan comes and attacks one member of this church. We all hurt, don't we? And we need to come and fight for that, brethren. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah is setting everyone in order. He puts men at different spots, different watch points. The strongest at the weakest places. He puts the man that's going to sound the trumpet right beside him so he's readily at hand. And then he said, if that trumpet sounds, know this, the enemy's coming. And you need to fight for your brethren. You need to fight one for another. We're all part of the body of Christ. And if one of us hurts, we all hurt. Or we ought to. What is it that would drive a Christian brother or sister in Christ to look resentfully at another brother or sister in Christ that may be overtaken in a fault? What is it that would cause us to do that? And there's only one answer. Pride. We are just like the publican who stood looking at the heavens while the sinner lay penitent on the altar, beating his chest, pleading for God's mercy. We're just like the publican who looks up into heaven with his haughty spirit and says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that man. When what that publican should have done is gone down there and knelt beside him and wept with him. And said, but by the grace of God, I would be in the same boat that you're in. Let me help you. Let me help you. Oh, that God would bring a church together to love one another, to edify one another, to encourage one another. And the Bible says so much the more as you see the day approaching. The world's going to be violent enough towards Christians, aren't they? They're going to attack Christianity and the cause of Christ enough. The devil's going to do all he can to stop us. Those fiery darts and the wiles of the wicked one are going to come flying at us and hurtling at us. We've got enough battles to fight without having to fight one another.
Nehemiah, he's a man of preparation. He sees the weakness in the wall. You'd have to be blind today to not see the weakness in the wall in America. You'll find it in our churches. Our churches have turned a blind eye for too long to sin and allowed Satan to get a foothold in America that's unprecedented. And it's time for God's people to get behind the breaches of the wall and to fight for their brethren. We lift up one another in prayer, encourage one another, strengthen one another, and protect ourselves against the onslaught of the wicked one. The church has no reason to be fearful, do they? Nehemiah told the people, he said, the Lord, the Lord's going to fight. He's going to take care of it. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. We've got a great, great task ahead of us. We're supposed to reach this world with the gospel. And you can mark it down as we go. There's going to come some hardship. And there's going to be some wounded. There are going to be some casualties along the way. What do we do when this happens? We rally around them. We encourage them. We strengthen them and we restore them. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for your word and what it teaches. I pray that you would help us to have the wisdom to understand and to know that we are involved in a very, very serious battle each and every day of our lives. Most of us never recognize it. We look at the circumstances of life as just things that happen by chance and that you are not in control of them. The truth of the matter is, Lord, you're vitally in control of them. There's not one thing that happens in our life that you're not aware of, that you do not allow. And Father, we are involved in this warfare that you've given to us, and I pray that you would help us to be strong, to trust in you, to look to you for our strength. But Lord, when that battle comes, I pray that you would help us to rally to the aid of each other, to love one another, to encourage one another. And Father, that the work may not be stopped we would be able to organize in such a way that our Christian life and our growth to become more of what we ought to be for you is not hindered by the rubbish and the rubble of our lives. But there would be others that would come to our aid and strengthen our hands for the work. Father, I pray that you would help us at Kefa Heights Baptist Church to be aware of the great responsibility that we have. Father, you've given us people. You've given us buildings. You've given us resources. And then, Lord, You've given us a a task and a job to do. And, Lord, if all we do is take the things that You've given to us and take our ease and do nothing to do the work that You've given for us to do, then, Lord, I believe we'll be held accountable for that. I pray that You would help us to be faithful. That you would help us to love you with all of our hearts and with all of our soul, with all of our minds. That we would seek to do your work, not because we have to, but because we get the great honor and privilege to serve the King of Kings. Father, if there's someone here this morning that's not saved, I pray that you'd help them to know that you love them an awful lot. In fact, you love them so much you sent your Son to die in their place. That they can get the salvation matter settled this morning simply by putting their faith and trust in the shed blood of your of your Son. I pray that during the invitation time you would help them to respond. That we'd have the opportunity to take your word and show them how they can be saved today. Perhaps there are Christians here today that need to 
rededicate their lives to the Lord. Maybe there are some that need to come to you and commit that they're going to work to get the rubbish out of their lives that would hinder their growth. Father, there may be some that have stumbled in their treatment of others. They've been quick to pass judgment, to speak ill of another brother or sister in Christ. When the truth of the matter is we should have been praying for them and encouraging them and loving on them. And Father, there may be some folks here in this room today that need to go to somebody and say, Lord, I'm, or, friend, I'm sorry for the way I've treated you. I pray that you would help us to be unified in spirit and mind. That your Holy Spirit will enable and strengthen us as a church to forge ahead in this community that you've given to us to serve in. To reach people with your word before it's too late. Bless the invitation time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed, and we'll have Miss Evelyn begin to play a hymn of invitation. If God's spoken to you this morning.